I've experienced times so difficult and felt boredom and loneliness to such a degree that it seemed to be a physical thing inside so thick it felt like it was choking me, trying to squeeze the sanity from my mind, the spirit from my soul, and the life from my body. This is a quote from a book called Hell is a Small Place, uh, which is a compilation of essays written on the effect and impact of those who have been placed in solitary confinement. It includes quotes like the one we just read from prisoners who experience perhaps the deepest levels of isolation and loneliness. In a, weird, in a world that is broken, it, we seem to be seeing an increase in this feeling of isolation and loneliness, not just in the deepest recesses of a prison, but widespread throughout communities and all types of people. As I read that quote, maybe you even wondered, like, are, that, are those Matt's own words? Like, is this him sharing these things with us? Because as I read through that quote over and over again, I could see how relatable some, some of the sentiments were by this prisoner that the quote was taken from. Or maybe those words even resonated with you in a season where you have felt isolated, where you have felt lonely, or maybe that's the season that you're in right now. This problem of loneliness has only trended upward in recent years, so much so that our country's Surgeon General released a 66-page document in May of 2023 titled, Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation. Here's his opening statements. When I first took office as Surgeon General in 2014, I didn't view loneliness as a public health concern, but that was before I embarked on a cross-country listening tour where I heard stories from my fellow Americans that surprised me. People began to tell me that I felt isolated, that they felt isolated, invisible, and insignificant. Even when they couldn't put their finger on the word lonely, time and time again, people of all ages and socioeconomic backgrounds from every corner of the country would tell me, I have to shoulder all of life's burdens by myself. Or, if I disappear tomorrow, no one will even notice. It was a light bulb moment for me. Social disconnection was far more common than I had realized. In, in the scientific literature, I had found confirmation of what I was hearing in recent years about one in two adults in America reported experiencing loneliness. And that was before the COVID-19 pandemic cut off so many of us from friends, loved ones, and support systems exacerbating loneliness and isolation. Loneliness, as we read, if you want, want it after the service to go and read through that document, it could be easy to see it as a problem that's just out there. But loneliness, if we're honest, is a problem that's here in our walls, in the church, in the people that sit in these seats. Um, even if we just took a poll, we won't, I won't make you do that. And we looked around of people that in the last week have felt lonely, the last month the last year, or there was a debilitating point or time in their life of loneliness in the past that still impacts them today, my guess is that a lot of hands would go up. This morning, as I'm prepping to preach, uh, I just had 
voices in the sense of like things that have been said to me over the years or insecurities that I had that crept up as I'm prepping to preach where the enemy is totally trying to isolate me and make me feel cut off and that there's things that I need to be worried about and that I can't trust God with this morning as I get up in front of my brothers and sisters and talk to them about community. We all experience loneliness and isolation in different degrees. For some people, it may be when you attend a Sunday service. Uh, We've seen this in youth groups, students that feel totally alone in a crowd of people, where it seems like they should be thriving and known and loved and have community and fellowship, but they feel like if they weren't there, nobody would even notice. The stay-at-home parent that no one quite understands their unique battle every single day just to make it through the day. And yet people kind of write it off of that's just normal, where for you there is deep isolation and loneliness in seasons. Those who have an occupation where it's anything but popular to be a Jesus follower and just wondering when there's going to be something that's said to you about what you said or how you conducted yourself or where that will be confronted again. Those that on a night of the week where normally people get together, or at least that's the social norm on a Friday night, a Saturday night, but you find yourself at home scrolling on your phone or scrolling through whatever uh, platform to watch something where in that it's just connected to guilt of like, I feel like there's a better way I could be spending my time. But also when it comes down to it, you wonder if you actually have nothing better to do because of your lack of connection to others. Maybe for some it's you can't remember the last time that somebody reached out to you to just see how you're doing. Maybe it's hidden sin that convinces you that if people actually knew you, you wouldn't be loved. I went back and forth uh, prepping for the sermon of this should be how we open. Uh, Because our theme this morning is not isolation and loneliness, praise God. Um, Our theme is community. We're talking, we have like a little precursor uh, to a series that we're going to do in January on community. And as I went back and forth of like, should ah, should I bring this up and talked with Greg and sit in this, it then surprised me this week as I met with three different individuals, um, not about the sermon, people that don't know each other, didn't know I was preaching, um, people that the topic wasn't loneliness when we first decided to meet, people that ended up opening up, up about how deeply alone they feel. These are all people that go to church, uh, people of different generations, and people that are experiencing a level of isolation and then anxiety with their aloneness uh, to a level of they don't know what it looks like to follow God in the midst of this thing. And so in that, I was like, okay, Lord, this is something we should talk about. So what should the Christ follower's response be to this problem of loneliness? And this is where we get to talk about community and not just as a simple solution, like, oh, well, you're lonely, you just need community. But that God has woven into the fabric of creation and humanity that we are to live in relationship, first and foremost with our creator, but also 
with his creation, with other human beings. So then how can the church be a beacon of community in the way that God intended it? So like I said, this is a precursor to a series that will kick off our year in January, talking about community for a couple weeks before we dive back into another book of the Bible and work verse by verse through it. And with that, we also will be launching community groups at our church. Um, So we're going to dive into that together. Um, We did a, a survey several months back coming out of the assessment that was done, and it was just clear that there were people that sat in these seats week after week that felt like they were attending a church but didn't always feel like they were a part of a church community because they there was just a longing to be known and to know others in a deeper way. Um, So in our series, I want to give you like a potential arc. You get to come on the cutting room floor of things that we'll be working on in the next month or so before we dive into this series in January because how we're going to talk about community is community as testimony. We'll talk about that a little bit today. We'll talk about community as sanctification and healing. We'll talk about community as resistance, and we'll talk about community as rhythm. But for this morning, what I want us to do is to look at Jesus's heart for the church, for this community of followers that would choose to lay down their life and take hold of Christ and in so doing, do that together. So if you have your Bibles this morning, turn to John 17. Uh, It'll be on the screen, but so good. If you brought your physical Bible or your phone, get into Scripture. Read it for yourselves. Make sure I'm not making anything up. The backdrop to John 17 as we dive in is Jesus is prepping his disciples for his departure. Uh, This is the longest recorded conversation between Jesus and his disciples. It's known as the Upper Room Discourse. And Jesus talks about many things here. That man, if we just sat in these chapters, there's so much richness of, of what it, of Jesus revealing who he is and what relationship with him and with the church looks like. So as he's been prepping him for his departure, let's remember that these disciples, all they had known was actually physically following around a body of Jesus, right? His physical form. They had a person to follow and walk around. Even as Jesus sends out the 72, they came back to Jesus and gave a report of how things went. All they knew was like, Jesus, you go and we'll follow you physically. So then as Jesus starts to talk about his departure, clearly that would be a cause for some concern. Like, wait, why are you leaving? Like, this thing seems to be really taking off. Like, why would you go? What's happening next? And then Jesus is talking about how he's going to die. And they're like, "Uh, no, that wasn't part of the plan. But in the midst of this conversation, John 14, Jesus says this, starting at verse 15, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The word cannot, world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you before long. The world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. 
Because I live, you will also live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. We see that last sentence there repeated over and over again in this conversation that Jesus has, that he's in the Father, you are in me, I am in you. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we have this Greek word that's used over and over again, koinonia, fellowship, communion with God. Jesus says he's in the Father, we are in him, he's in us. We see this overlap of life on life, connectedness, joined together. So it makes sense then when in John 15, Jesus then goes on to use an analogy of a vine or a tree. In John 15, 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This analogy that this vine makes up the life and the roots that all the branches need to be connected to in order to flourish and to have life. But in the branches being connected to the vine, they also make a system, a network of branches that are connected to one another. But Jesus wants it to be clear, apart from me, you, you can't do this. Like, you have to be connected to me first and foremost. And that this is the design for all believers. The story of the Bible, summed up in, in a way, is what we see in the prophets, what we see all throughout of God saying, I will be their God, and they will be my people. That Jesus here says, I am the vine, connected to me, and then they are my people, and they're connected to me together. So this and much more is the conversation that Jesus is having before he ultimately concludes this upper room discourse with a prayer. And then after this prayer, as many of us know, Jesus and his disciples go to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's there that Jesus is arrested. He's tried, ultimately crucified, and then buried. But this is the prayer that concludes this conversation he's been having with his disciples. In John 17, starting at verse 20, where we're diving in, Jesus has already started this prayer, giving glory and praise to God. But then in turn, he prays for his own disciples. And then in this passage that we're diving into, Jesus then goes on to pray for anyone that would believe their message, any believers that would follow after him. And what I want us to hear in this passage is Jesus' heart for the church, for community. When we gather together, what is God desiring? Verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am you, I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me, them, even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be where I am. And to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, 
though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So this morning, three observations that I have for us on Jesus's heart for community. One, that our fellowship would bring about unity. Let's look at verse 23 again really quick. Just the first section. Uh, verse, here we go. Verse 23. I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Jesus over and over in this passage says, may they be one as we are one. Jesus knows perfect unity, complete unity within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, just as he, we, Father, Son, and Spirit have complete and perfect unity. He prays that same thing for his church. He prays that for you and I. Jesus knows perfect unity that is relationship void of arguing, void of selfishness, void of jockeying for position, void of feeling left out or inferior. He knows trust perfectly. He knows peace perfectly. He knows friendship perfectly. In Harvest, he prays that we would know that kind of unity with one another out of our being united in Christ together. I have a long-standing friendship where this friend, I mean, whether you use the language best friend or close friend, however you want to use it, right? Been friends with this person for a long time. And as we know with friendships, uh, even your close friends, you get into that rhythm where uh, it's smooth. You're thinking what the other person's thinking, and you don't need to, like, you can be okay in silence together because there's just this total security in that relationship. And with this friend, though, and with friendships in general, it doesn't mean there's not bumps along the way. And going back several years now, I remember an argument that I had with this friend, and it was back and forth, double-sided, where we both walked away feeling hurt and it was unresolved. And I remember being in my apartment. I was making my bed for once. Um, and I remember talking to God about this situation because this was someone who I had fellowship with as another believer. And talking to God, having him work in my heart of like, what do I need to apologize for? Where was I wrong but then I remember also in that same conversation the fear I felt of what if I go to them and I apologize for these ways that I know I hurt them in that conversation. God, what if they don't say anything back in the ways that they hurt me? That feels risky, God. It feels safer almost to like hold those things and not make myself vulnerable and say, I know I've wronged you. There's no guarantee that they'll say it back to me. And I remember this moment clearly because I do remember making the bed, but I remember what the Lord spoke to me by his spirit. He was like, Matt, do you not trust that I've put that same Holy Spirit in them? That I'm working these things out in them? That just as much as I'm bringing these things up in you, I want them to see those same things. 
do we believe that God has given us all we need to be united? That we can trust his Holy Spirit to be at work in our brothers and sisters. And that doesn't give us permission then when we get into an argument with a brother or sister in Christ to be like, God, would you just work everything out in them, Lord? Like do whatever it takes to make them right without us first, as Jesus says, hey, check out the log in your own eye before you point out the splinter in your brother's eye. That God has the power by his same spirit to be working out unity. Do we believe he actually wants that in his church? Do we function that way together, especially in hardship? Friends that are married, do you function that way in your marriage? Friends that uh, have roommates, do you function that way with your roommates that are believers? Your family, as we gear up for Thanksgiving and things get a little clunky sometimes, and you have family that are believers too, and and it's hard, do you believe that God wants to produce unity in his people? Part of our isolation in these four walls in the church, not just Harvest, but in churches all over the map, part of this isolation comes, I think, from an unbelief that God has actually made us brothers and sisters, that he can actually unify us, that the big dividing walls that we've placed, that we actually don't think the gospel can break through that. And I think with that, too, there's fear that, like I was fearful in that moment, that we would lose too much for the sake of this unity. God, if you are actually going to unify us, that means I have to do the thing, Jesus, that you said of, like, dying to myself. Because you're not guaranteed on the other side of that conversation that they may apologize to you or they may see the error of their ways. But Jesus calls us to walk towards unity, to be unified with one another. And when we're ever afraid of losing too much, we need to remember the gospel. The gospel that says Christ gave up everything. Gave up everything on our behalf. And then took on everything. Took on all our sin. Took on all our shame. So that the veil was torn. So that we could have communion with God. And... We could have communion with one another. We could be made whole as a people that he could instill in his followers a new humanity. Do we believe that God has the power and that he has made a way for that to be possible? And if we believed that in our heart of hearts, how would that change how we interact with our brothers and sisters as we strive for unity? Because Jesus says, just as I'm one with the Father, would they be one? Observation number two, that our fellowship would be a testimony, that it would tell a story. Verse 21, may they be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. That the oneness of the church to God and the church to one another would tell a story about who our God is and what he's done. That God, in bringing together a multi-ethnic family with all of our baggage, with all of our brokenness, he is 
able to be powerfully perfect in really weak people to make us new, to bring us close to him when once we were far off and then close to one another as well. That he's able to help us sift through our differences and find our commonality in Christ. That we might actually be a unified church. As Paul writes over and over again, that here there's no Scythian, there's no Greek, there's no slave, there's no free, but Christ is all and is in all. That that is the story that we are marked with as a people. Our culture loves a good breakup story, right? And you may be here and you're like, I don't love a good breakup story. I bet you do. For me, I'll give a couple examples. This last summer, man, I was ready for a big breakup to happen. Damian Lillard and the Blazers. And my heart was not ready for this breakup, but it happened. And I found myself all throughout the summer, once Dame demanded a trade, and I know I lost all you non-sports people, so sorry. I'll get off this in just a second. Um, But as he demanded for a trade from the Blazers, I wanted the juicy details of like, oh my gosh, what did the front office do to not take care of my Damian Lillard? And like, what's Dame doing now? What team wants him? And I tried to find all the details of this breakup that happened and ensued and how it all, all the fallout took place. Maybe for you, you like when the celebrities break up, other celebrities, not the athlete ones, but the other ones. Like, did you hear the news this morning? The whole Travis Kelsey, Taylor Swift thing's done. They broke up. I'm just kidding. They didn't. But I scared like at least five of you here. And then others had a lot of relief. Um, But if that were to happen, like as much as the world is already watching, and which is crazy to say, but they are. The world is already watching that relationship. If a breakup happened, people would lose their minds of trying to figure out the things of why this went down in the way that it did. We love finding out the details in a big corporation of why it imploded. We love finding out the details of a band and why they all went their separate ways. Even if you go back to that time and that place in middle school or high school, you weren't the one broken up with, but you heard about Sally, who you barely know, and you know about Joe, and they were dating for a while, and you watched it for a distance, and you just want to know, why did that breakup happen? Tell me the story. God wants his church to tell a different story, one of unity. That, sure, there's plenty of brokenness in this story, but it's a story that's anchored in redemption. As much as the world seems to lean in for a good breakup story, Jesus says, the story of my people brought to me and brought to one another in unity. This should be a story that the world needs to hear and people will see ultimately who I am because of this story. While breakups are happening all over the place, and we know this, right? The whole isolation thing. During COVID, there were a lot of different kinds of breakups that went down relationally where people that felt like they knew each other for years all of a sudden aren't speaking together or aren't inviting each other into homes or aren't going to the same church anymore. And in that, God said, no, like church, tell a different story than the rest of your culture tells. Tell a story about staying together. Tell a story about your oneness, your unity, that Jesus has done something that's more powerful than any breakup narrative out there. 
No church handles hurt and hardship perfectly. There are churches that have done really well and, and navigated some really tricky waters well in hurt and hardship. But none has done it perfectly. Only our God navigates hardship and brokenness perfectly. And at Harvest, we don't navigate hardship and brokenness perfectly. We failed at times as leadership to, to see things that we, we, we should have seen coming and take the right steps beforehand to avoid division. That's why one of our core values now here is to be gracious with one another. To be gracious as our God is gracious. That in hardship, in brokenness, what we want people to be met with is grace. And not just for the people that have stayed in these four walls. But Romans 12, 18, Paul writes, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. During COVID, Harvest was like every other church. We, had, we lost people. We had people leave. People that potentially left church altogether and people that found a new home, a new church, and it was hard. These were people that we fellowshiped with for years. And the temptation when that happens is to think, oh, now relationship is over. The truth, church, is we are all going to the same eternal kingdom. Those are our brothers. Those are our sisters. For those of you that joined us during the great, like, uh, the great uh, shaking up of churches that happened in 2020, 2021, you are our brothers and our sisters. And the church that you left, those are your brothers and sisters. And one day as we stand before our God, he will say, like, welcome, good and faithful servants. And we will cry out one voice, hallelujah, our God has won. And we won't see all our different divisions. We won't see all the different hardship and hurt because we see in Revelation that he will wipe every tear from our eyes and we will remember our sins no more. While the relationship may not look the same when brokenness happens in relationship, the story for believers that we have is the opportunity to tell a story of being gracious, seeking peace, not just with our brothers and sisters in the same building or context as us, but with all people, like Romans says, with everyone. And an, inter and an eternal perspective of where we all go are all going needs to inform the ways that we seek peace and seek to love our fellow believers, whether they fellowship in these four walls or not. Because that proclaims a testimony. That proclaims a story to the world that the world does not understand. They don't understand not drawing lines in the sand and saying, I'm done with you if you don't think about this thing the way I do, or I'm done with you if you don't meet me in this space. No, the gospel tells something very different, and the church is supposed to be a church that fights for this unity that was won for us in Christ. This proclaims a testimony that the world needs desperately. Because isolation and loneliness tell a powerful story. Sometimes it's a story that's been handed down to us from others and how that we think people feel about us. Sometimes it's all internal. That, man, I don't know the last time that 
anyone's reached out to me. And like the Surgeon General quoted, people saying like, I have to carry all life's burdens myself. What a powerful and devastating story to be living in. Or that if I was gone, no one would even notice. That is a powerful story that you're living in, that that's what you believe. But the story we've received in Christ is a story that has the power to rid every other narrative of its power. Final point. Our fellowship is rooted first and foremost in the self-giving love of the Trinity, of God himself. Verse 23, we read the first half. Let's read it all the way through. In I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me. There it is again. Like this is a testimony to the world. And have loved them even as you loved me. Or if it's helpful for you, other translations say, loved them just as you have loved me. Which we need to pause in that, probably for all of eternity. We actually get to pause in that for all eternity. That Jesus is saying here, with the same love that the Father has loved him, God has loved us. Like that should break our categories. That should throw everything off its hinges because somehow the Father, in the way that he has loved the Son, he has extended that same love to you and I, church. That when Jesus is baptized and the sky rips open and the Spirit descends like a dove on Jesus and then this voice calls out from the heavens, this is my Son whom I love, listen to him. With the same intensity, with the same commitment, God has loved you and I. And I don't get that. As I'm preaching it right now, I know I don't fully believe that because I don't live like I believe it. And my guess is for each of us, it is hard for us to believe that God has loved us in such a way and maybe loved our brothers and sisters in such a way. But this is what Jesus says, just as the Father has loved him, so he loves us. As a father now, I love Bennett deeply. And I cannot imagine loving any of you with the same intensity that I love Bennett. I just can't. Like, I'm too limited. And I think he's crying right now. (laughs) And my father heart wants to go back there and be like, you guys are on your own for the rest of this thing, right? Because I love my son. In the same way, mothers, fathers, in the same way that you have loved your kids, for those of us that that is a part of our life, God says he has loved us in the same way he loves the son. And that is unreal. That should cause us to worship, to fall on our knees and not understand how this could be true. Going further in verse 24, Jesus says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Have you ever wondered what God was doing before he creates in Genesis 1? Like the Bible opens that in the beginning, God. Like not in the beginning, God was created, right? He is the uncreated being that God has existed in all time. And what was he doing? 
before he creates the cosmos, before he creates our world. And what Jesus says here is a little snapshot into what was going on with God, that God has been in the loving relationship of the Trinity for all time. And that has continued to go on. And that is so important because when God creates, he doesn't create out of necessity of needing relationship with someone. He doesn't create out of, out of just like, I need people to worship me, so I'm going to create this thing, or I really need to like show off how powerful. No, God was in perfect, loving relationship that Jesus is talking about here, Father, Son, and Spirit, always. That has always been the case for God. Jesus says, before the creation of the world, you loved me. It makes sense then in 1 John when John writes later, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. He is both the source and the embodiment of love itself because within himself, one being, three persons displayed, there is perfect relationship. There is perfect love. Tim Keller, who has since gone to be with Jesus, to see this awesome thing of Father, Son, and Spirit, perfect relationship, and be in God's presence, wrote this in his, in his book, The Reason for God. And man, if you're anything like me, you guys are probably smarter than I am. I had to read this like 80 billion times to understand it, or to feel like I could grasp it. But I think it's so, so beautiful, the picture he paints. The life of the Trinity is characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutually self-giving love. When we delight and serve someone else, we enter a dynamic orbit around him or her. We center on the interests and desires of the other. That creates a dance, particularly if there are three persons each of whom moves around the other two. So it is, the Bible tells us. Each of the divine persons centers upon the others. None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntary, voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers, and rejoices in the others. That creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. The early leaders of the Greek church had a word for this. I'm going to butcher it. Perichorius. Notice the root of our word choreography within it. It means literally to dance or flow around. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit glorify each other. At the center of the universe, self-giving love is the dynamic currency of the Trinitarian life of God. And I should probably just pray and end because that was so stinking good. We then are invited to enter this dance with the Trinity. As we orbit around God, and in turn, he causes us to live this way with one another. That in community, this self-giving love would be evident in the church as we do not make ourselves the center, but as Paul writes in Philippians, we consider others more important than ourselves. Because the thing that I have seen be the silent killer in community time and time again, and I've participated in it as well, is when a group of people come together as believers to fellowship for whatever the purpose, youth group, community group, Sunday morning, a Bible study, and we carry the mindset of what can I get out of this? 
in that mindset, what we have done is we have put ourselves at the center to take or receive from others, give to me because this needs to be worth my time. At youth group, what we talk about often is that, hey, when you come to youth group, the temptation will be, gosh, I hope there's a really fun game tonight. And man, I hope my friends are here. And I hope the music is music that connects with me and that I know and that I like. And the lesson, the lesson, I really, it better speak right to where I'm at. Or I hope it's not a story that I've heard before in the Bible. And I hope that when I share in my discussion group, people really respond in a way where I feel loved. All of those aren't bad desires to have or to want, but what they do is you miss out on the story that you've been invited to when we think that church or fellowship should center around us instead of asking the question, God, what do you want to do in us? God, what can I give to them? That is how the church should function. What are you doing in our midst tonight? So for a Sunday morning, I'm sure we never carry that mindset on Sunday. Like, gosh, I hope there's music I like. Man, I hope they made the stage in a way that, that I like. Gosh, I hope this, the coffee's good today. We never do that, right? I don't at least. I do all the time. But instead, when we gather... What if we said, God, what are you doing in our midst? As I sing out to you, do I just take a, a pause for a second to listen to my brothers and sisters singing out to the Lord and just get caught up in the joy of where we're all going one day, where every voice, every believer will be calling out to Jesus that he is one. When I come to church, when I sit in community, do I wonder what God is doing in the heart of my brother or sister down the aisle or the person that's new and how I might be praying for them during the sermon. When I ask people how they're doing, am I present with them or am I just looking past them to the next thing that I want to do? And do I even stop to pray with those individuals because the most important thing we could do as they're talking with me is to go to God together. As I sit in a sermon, do I not just have the heart and posture of like, man, I really hope this connects with me, but thinking about how this might be connecting with people in my community as I remember they lost a loved one recently, as I remember they lost a job recently, or I remember them sharing about a certain struggle before, or, or maybe God wants to use this in my coworker's life, what I'm hearing this morning, or in my spouse's life, and there's something that I need to encourage them with. Or as I go back home, as I'm sitting by myself, I can reach out to that friend that I've longed to go to church with me, but they've always said no, and God's using something to encourage them. What a way for the church to combat isolation and loneliness if each of us is willing to, uh, or is driven relationally to give love to others. That first, there's a trust that we have been loved by the Father in the same way he has loved his Son. So we have a deep well that we can pull from as we don't make ourselves the center, but we make God the center and give his love to others. And the good news is we can trust that God is putting us on other people's hearts and minds as well. He's that good. Like, we don't have to be so concerned that things have to be about me because maybe I'll be missed. God is so much bigger than that for you to be overlooked. But he also wants you to join in that, in that story. 
that people who do feel lonely are noticed, that the church is a representation of God's love in our midst. So to close, we at Harvest recognize there is a felt need in our church and in this cultural moment for depth of fellowship, community with one another. It's really hard to know others and to be known by others just by attending Sunday morning services. I'd say it's almost impossible to actually strive towards these things of unity, of testimony, of just being rooted in this love of the Trinity. And I'd say in this moment, we could use a refresher, I could use a refresher on the theology God lays out in Scripture of what he calls his church to in community. And this isn't to say there aren't pockets of deep community in our church, because there are. There are those of you that just deeply care for other people here, and we thank you, and also we would say, let's grow in this together no matter where we're at. And community groups are not the answer. We do think it will be a very helpful way for us to grow in this together. And so this morning, there is a link that's available in your bulletins. If you didn't fill out that survey, but you are interested in diving into community and striving towards these things that Jesus has this heart for his church, we would say, follow that link or Back at the info center, there's also like a hard copy that you could write your name down and take a step of faith in diving into some community together for our first season of having like full-fledged community groups that will be coming through the church, even though we've had seasons of community in the past. But maybe those aren't possible for you, and that's okay. Everyone's in a different season. We'd still ask you to be intentional with the people that you go to church with to grab coffee with someone after the service, to have someone over for a meal, to play games or go on a hike, have some sort of shared experience together, to come to the soup and bread dinners monthly and make a point to get to know other people, to take us up on things like prayer when we offer it up front. Or if we say, hey, if you have a question, talk to the staff. There are people here that want to go to God on your behalf so that you don't feel as lonely or isolated and you feel connected to a community. And so this morning, we want to make prayer available during communion and through the rest of the time of our worship, uh, especially for those who, as we talked about isolation and loneliness this morning, it hit something in your spirit or in your heart that just was like, ah, that's me. Because what God wants to do in that is to call you out of that into, and call you to himself. And maybe the scariest act for you would actually to, be get out of, to get out of your chair and to come forward. But even that act, that posture, is a prayer and a declaration to God of, I need your help in this. You could come forward for prayer for anything that you need this morning. Because there are people here that want to go to God on your behalf. What Jesus prays for us in John 17 is for us, church. We've heard his heart for us to not be isolated, but to be joined together in him and joined to our brothers and sisters in a radical way.